today on Edge Effects. It doesn't surprise me now that I see what's going on in Standing Rock because I've seen it in the North. But I think it should be much more part of our discussions of climate change because these things from the past, these long ago treaties that we decided, they set the terms of not only who owns land, but who makes decisions on land and what kind of knowledge is brought to bear on what is an impact and what, when is an impact too much. Anthropologist William Vuano Barron is joined by Andrew Stuhl, Assistant Professor of Environmental Studies at Bucknell University, to talk about Stuhl's new book, Unfreezing the Arctic, Science, Colonialism, and the Transformation of Inuit Lands. I'm Brian Hamilton, and this is Edge Effects. Thanks for being with us today, Andrew. One of the most important contributions of your new book, uh, Unfreezing the Arctic, is its call to humanize the science of the Arctic. In other words, to recognize both the Arctic as an inhabited place, as well as the ways in which the history of science in the Arctic is peopled by various actors. As you note in the introduction of your book, your methods are not strictly archival. Rather, you also draw upon 20 months of fieldwork in Canada's Northwest Territories. So in a sense, your methods mirror the argument you make throughout your book, which is that climate scientists need to engage both with living local voices as well as with archival ones. So can you please tell our readers and listeners how your time in the field shaped the perspective you bring to your book? Yeah, that's a great question. Sure. Well, I went to the Arctic first in 2007 after finishing my master's at University of Wisconsin. I didn't really go with a sense of here are my five research questions. I went with a sense of, I'm really concerned about climate change. I want to go understand this place. And I think that was an important orientation to have, quote unquote, in the field that we would now maybe refer to as community-based scholarship or public scholarship. And that is that the people we are going to study or turn into collaborators, the regions of the, of the world that we find our interests in, those places and people can shape the questions that we eventually ask, and they should, uh, especially in, a, in places that are, have long been marginalized or colonial places. So I, I think going there for the first 10 months in 2007, 2008, I learned a lot from people, Inuit, not Inuit, about what questions they had around climate change. I remember specifically a drive I took with a man named Jimmy Kalenic, who's an Inuvaluit. He's an, an Inuit of the Canada's Western Arctic. That's what Inavaluate means. We were on a caribou hunt and we were driving on this truck down this road and I was asking him all about climate change. Are you seeing ice melt? Are you seeing changing in migration patterns of geese and caribou? And he had things to say about that, but he really wanted to tell me that, look, this isn't the first time that governments and corporations have, have been concerned about environmental change in our homelands. It's not the first time that scientists have come up and tried to tell us what to do. And so that really you know, put my radar up. Uh, looking back, it's certainly an innocent kind of view and it's certainly a cliche white southerner coming up to make a discovery about what's happened in the Arctic. But it really turned my project toward a more critical view of the Arctic, one that took seriously Inuit voices and learned to listen to them and to, to position the Arctic not just as a place of our fascination, but a place that we're intimately connected to and have been for some time. There's other ways, too, that the, my fieldwork impacted this project. And I, I think a lot about just being in a place 
you, you get connected to that place. And I wanted to get connected to a region of the Arctic to understand how its environment worked, right? And to tell an environmental history from a place of knowledge around tundra plants and animals and river deltas and seasons of extreme light. So knowing, knowing those things firsthand, I think, really helped. But more so the connections I made with community members, I started to see scholarship and flows of knowledge through a very, very long stream of time. They have really important effects on self-determination. And so for, in short, a really long history of scientists coming up, studying the Arctic, taking that work back, presenting in conferences, earning, earning tenure at university, publishing their work, but never really returning it to the North. Uh, or doing so in very small ways, and not allowing that work to to raise the profile of of communities in the north, or allowing communities in the north to be in control of that information too. So that was important to me. That somehow in this project, I wanted to return the knowledge to the north, or allow it to do more work outside of the academic circles we travel in. That's really interesting. I I think you touch on an important point that research is fundamentally extractive uh, and, and returning that um, or working with people all along to produce that work, uh, working with local people all along to produce that work is, is important or vital, uh, in fact. And one of the men I spoke with over the summer asked me not to write a hollow text. Um, th- those are the words he used. And I asked him what that meant, like, what is a hollow text? And he said it's it's one in which the the ending of the story is is, is always bad, um, and I, and it doesn't do anything for us because I, you know a lot of the narratives of the north and life in the north are, at least within anthropology um, or in public uh, representations, it, uh, the north has been pathologized, uh, and along with that, the, a, a way of life, and and this also comes through in your in your in your book or you gesture to how ways of life and also. Ecolo- entire ecologies are seen as threatened or as dangerous um, and need in need of saving. And so this man was saying, you know, something that's not a hollow text will articulate what we are doing um, and how we are surviving, how we are getting on, um, not just despite the problems we're facing, but but because of them. That's right. Yeah. And this this was really something I sat with when trying to end the book and the the narrative of the book, but also position the last chapter, because it could be easy to tell this declensionist narrative or, to, as you say, pathologize northern places or you know places around the world that have experienced really rapid environmental change that's very traumatic. And that's everyone would acknowledge that in the places that you and I have traveled. It's very traumatic. But there are also moments, however small or however fugitive, there's moments for possibility. And in the last chapter in the 1960s and 70s, you see the very actors who for a hundred years prior had gone north and tried to control resources through their research, these scientists, these very actors start to take a different stance and they start to work with local communities. They start to combine ideas of environmentalism with social justice. And if we just ignore that, if we downplay that, then we miss the complexity of the present moment. We miss the complexity of science. We miss the choices that all scientists have to make around their research agendas. And so trying to really confront um, that history, as you say, to try to write not a hollow text but something richer, to show moments of possibility, isn't, isn't 
hopeless or isn't blindlessly hopeful. Uh, it's actually confronting the richness of, of history, and it gives us in the moment today ideas of what's possible, even in the face of what seems like overwhelming change and changes forced on on the North. So I think that's not just a, a question of narrative now, but as we've been talking in this conversation, it's a question of practice. It's a question of what history really is and what history can do in, and historians can do in the public. Well, you make very clear from the beginning of your of your book that you do not intend to speak for Inuit people. And I think that's a very valuable, it's an important point to make from the get-go. And it's one that I think in, in making it, it's it doesn't preclude the importance of, of also sharing your experience and realizing the privilege that your experience gives you to be able to share those stories, not on not necessarily on someone else's behalf, but when someone shares the story with you, like you know, on this caribou hunting trip, that's a that's a responsibility to share that. At least that's a responsibility that I've started to feel when people share stories with me. Definitely, and I, I know we we've been talking about this in the context of environmental history, environmental histories of places with rich indigenous communities. But I think it's actually much broader than that. I actually think that this is part of, it should be part of historical practice. It should be part of all of our environmental histories. Just thinking about how, yeah, how, how knowledge, oral history is, can be an extractive process, how our environmental histories, the, the scales at which we pitch them or frame them could either open opportunities for community engagement or close them, close them off. Uh, the, the idea that whatever we choose to study can have um, different amounts for political change in the world. And so it's not that I think every historian needs to be a critical, politically engaged historian, but every historian needs to be aware of the choices we make, have those possibilities in them. And this is also a conversation I have with scientists, scientists especially. I was actually at the University of Albany couple months ago at giving a talk on campus in the history department, but I met with many of the scientists who are in the atmospheric and environmental sciences department. And I asked them, you know, how do you choose your research agenda? These are scientists who study the ice pack, like a lead, leading scientists who are using satellite data uh, to study the changes in the Arctic ice pack or the Greenlandic ice sheet. And it's really interesting to hear to see the disciplinary differences now between you and I talking history and anthropology and now the climate scientists. I think in history, and especially in environmental history, it's founded on political activism and uh, a need to engage the public. And so it's, it's, you're not really needing to do a lot of convincing when you attend conferences in environmental history of applying your work to, to present-day concerns. Um, but it's still there, part of our, our discussion. In climate science, there's a lot of, at least I sense, a lot of hesitance that some climate scientists have spoken out and they've really been shunned. By the scientific community, they've had they faced lots of, of threats from uh, elected officials or within the halls of Congress, and so some can be very shy about uh, applying their research, and they just would rather stand in, in their laboratories or at their computers and just collect the data, just collect the data. And so I, I was trying to work in that space to say, like, that's we can't agree that that is a valid way of thinking of your work. That that even the choice to frame your work as removed from society. Uh, is is closing off other possibilities and ignoring the, the roots and connections you have to society. And so that's something I really want scientists to get from this book, 
um, is to see their work as having political effects and the responsibilities of their choices in research and applying their research and activism. Not only the scientists that are on the ground in the Arctic, but also the scientists that look at the Arctic through satellite records and satellite data down south. You encourage scientists studying the Arctic on the ground, as well as those studying the Arctic from afar, to have not only an awareness of Arctic history, but also an awareness of the political possibility of their work, as well as its roots in society. So what implication might these forms of awareness, historical and political, have for how society imagines or comes to know the Arctic? As scholars, when we go into the field, we become more aware of Arctic history, right? Arctic history is really well known in the Arctic. It's just not really well known outside of it. And you could say that if you just scan your Twitter feeds, your Facebook feeds, social media, popular scientific media, the Arctic is not really showing up in a historical sense. But I think it's important to press against that and look to see what kind of history is presented. I follow this really closely. So the New York Times this summer, lots of reports on the finally finding the lost Franklin Expedition vessels. A lot of reports on these cruise ships that are going through the Arctic um, because there's an open lane due to climate change melting the ice pack back. And so what I see when I look at those media reports is history being presented, but in just a very shallow, particular way. That There's a fascination with this ancient, lost British Empire these failures of British Empire in an extreme environment, or there's a fascination with a place that's about to transform, right? It's kind of a farewell tour, this cruise going through. Here's what it looks like before it's totally transformed by climate change. And so that's an Arctic that's out of time, right? It's either displaced into the past or it's displaced into the future. So I, a lot of my work is trying to challenge that and say those are interpretations of the Arctic, but where do they lead us? And, and we totally miss the colonial history that is, is alive and animates interactions between residents of the North, their elected officials, federal officials, scientists. So I think scholars need to take that lesson and apply it to other places that are now affected by climate change and have this potential for same erasure in the media. Well, erasure is an interesting term to think with especially as it relates to nostalgia. And I think nostalgia or an attention to how nostalgia flows through history is, is one thing that your book offers. And do you see nostalgia or this sort of fear of loss permeating how people relate to uh, different time periods in the Arctic? Well, I think the point of entry for this, this work, this is very much a history of science and environmental history and a colonial history, is to start with, you know, modern contemporary narratives of the Arctic. One, like from Greenpeace, they have a campaign right now, hashtag save the Arctic. And, you know, what's behind that? That is uh, a nostalgia for a pristine wilderness that environmental historians know all too well is a very troubled concept, right? But, but that's just the point of entry. As you go back into time, this does repeat itself, uh, taking different forms, and so in the early 1900s, we see an explosion in the number of scientific expeditions going to the Western Arctics, the Arctic slopes of Alaska, Yukon, and Northwest Territories. So why are they going there? Why are they investing so much money, I'm talking about federal governments here, but also philanthropists who are supporting scientists? There's some major reason is the nostalgia for what they fear will be a lost society of Inuit peoples, 
or a lost um, population of big game animals. And so the Arctic starts to symbolize and crystallize for a lot of Southerners this end of a simpler era or end of a simpler time. It's, it's a nostalgia that's totally wrapped up in the colonial enterprise, that they're watching whaling enterprises, whaling businesses move into the Arctic. They're watching federal officials support that and try to dispossess people of land and control land. And so the same scholars who are studying those processes are also being nostalgic for the loss of simpler times and the encroachment of civilization. And so whether then or now, that nostalgia is not innocent. It's actually doing work. It's doing work uh, related to the colonization of the Arctic and colonial intervention in, in people's lives there. So it seems that that nostalgia for something that is about to, to be lost or something already lost, it both indicates the limits of colonial management and also justifies the, the need for, for further management, albeit perhaps in a different in a different way. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. And we shouldn't ignore that right now we are seeing climate change in the Arctic. It's not that the nostalgia is baseless, right? And that one way that you can have a check on this, if you are a Southerner or if you've never been to the Arctic or if you're concerned about climate change, which people should be, is to just think about other possible ways of interpreting that change, right? What does the change mean? So this became very important to me in writing the book is what are different ways of understanding climate change? And if you look at Inuit-produced testimony on this or Inuit-produced assessments on this, the way that, that Inuit leaders have framed climate change is transformative. It is recognizing the ways that ice will change, that tundra environments will change, that livelihoods will change. But it's couched in a much longer uh, span of time. Uh, and it's also couched in the sense of that we will be resilient and we will face this change collaborating with whatever powers we can uh, to continue our livelihoods here. So it's, it's not necessarily embracing in a positive sense, in an entrepreneurial sense, you know, oh, these are oil resources, we can make, take advantage of them, they've never been exposed before. But it's, it's a sense of resilience based on overcoming and, and dealing with the past, rather than the nostalgia, which seems to want to cement the Arctic in one place and say it's gone forever, if that makes some sense there. That does. And that's an important uh, distinction to make. One of the things that I try to work with at this book, too, and it's a difficult double move, is, is to ask the readers to consider these modes of science in the Arctic and understand the Arctic through science, but also not to let the Arctic become the full target of our concern about climate change or environmental issues. If we do that, then we're really missing that the places that drive climate change aren't in the north, right? They're in there where we live. We are the right. ones, we are the ones that are putting out most of the greenhouse gas emissions. And so we have to be able, as readers of this book, as scholars, to see the Arctic as a colonial place, to see scientists doing work in the Arctic, to see opportunities for resilience, we all then have to take that back to where we live and engage scientists around climate change in Wisconsin or engage scientists around climate change in Pennsylvania. That probably feels right now to readers and listeners like difficult work because it's harder to see climate change if you don't have ice melting in your backyard. But it's the most important work we have because, again, the places where climate change is most visible is not the same as the places where climate change is starting.
Hmm. So when it comes to visibility of climate change and experiencing the effects of climate change in in one's daily life, one thing that I was surprised by um, or that I've come to learn in my work is that this issue is not a a native, non-native issue. Indigenous people aren't all in favor of not developing resources. In fact, they, they benefit from them. And you touch on this in your book. Well, you raise the important question, you know, how are Indigenous people involved in these decisions and how do they profit from not just financially profit from, but in, in a political sense, as an exercise in sovereignty, being a part of these decisions that are, are affecting their, their land. What can you say for our readers and listeners that sort of helps to complicate the position of indigenous governments in relationship to climate change and to land use and the, the development of, of natural resources? Sure. Yeah, that's a really good question. It's interestingly been part of uh, a discourse in the United States over the last couple of weeks with the Dakota Access Pipeline situation. And so uh, that's I've been talking about this with my students in this way, and that one of the things I'm starting to see in these these conflicts and controversies like the No Dapple situation is how relevant historical agreements like treaties can be for land use decision-making and also how relevant environmental policies like environmental impact assessment can be. And not even just relevant, they, they set the terms of who gets to move on land, who gets to be involved in decision making. And so right now we have the Army Corps of Engineers saying, look, you know, we do need to do further consultation with tribal governments. Uh, we're going to no longer look for easements or, or look for land takings until we've done f- further consultation. Now, if you took that conversation into Canada, everyone in the public, people living in the South, people living in the North, they would be nodding their heads and say, this is a no-brainer. In Canada, especially in the North and in Alaska, this is an everyday conversation. This is the last 40 years of history. This is what the nation has been been moved by since 1970. And so um, that's really been surprising to me that, again, our understanding of climate change in the South and academia in the United States has not brought into that conversation the place of treaties, the place of, his, of environmental policies like environmental impact assessment. In the Arctic region that I study, Inuit self-determination is founded on environmental impact assessment. Uh, there were two major pipeline proposals in the 1970s, one in Alaska, one next door in the Northwest Territories. The one in Alaska went through, and it's the Trans-Alaska Pipeline System. The one in the Canada did not go through. And the reason why is that the the federal appointee said we can't build a pipeline until we settle land claims with these indigenous peoples. Uh, And from that moment on in Canada, every land claim that's been settled in the Northwest Territories has had at its center the ability for indigenous peoples of that territory to participate in decision making on development, to have equal say on bodies that decide whether or not this proposed development will go through in our territory. So it doesn't surprise me now that I see what's going on in Dakota Access Pipeline situation, Standing Rock, because I've seen it in the north. But I think it should be much more part of our discussions of climate change, especially in North America, because these things from the past, these long ago treaties that we decided, they set the terms of not only who owns land, but who makes decisions on land and how. And what even within that, what kind of knowledge is brought to bear on what is an impact and what, when is an impact too much? Yeah, unfortunately, in in Alaska, the Alaska natives don't benefit from 
the history of treaty signing, uh, as as, I, as you probably know, and the though land claims were settled with the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act that you talk about in your book, uh, they it doesn't seem, from my experience, it doesn't seem that they have the leveraging capacity that the people that you're working with, uh, indigenous people in the Northwest Territories, do. Yeah, I just jump in there. That's a super fascinating point, and that's what I love about uh, this project being a transnational study of the Arctic, is you you can see these moments where possibilities for self-determination, possibilities for environmental protection or economic development, they split in time uh, and also by nation. And so the the ANCSA, the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act, 1971, is an act of Congress. It's not a treaty in the formal sense. Um, It it is the largest land transfer in U.S. history, 900-some million dollars uh, given to 12 different regional corporations. But you're right, there's no uh, recognition of subsistence harvesting rights of Native peoples in Alaska. And what happens as a result is that the Nubiat, who live along the northern slope of Alaska, they recognize that they've been left out of that possibility of of a decision-making mechanism. And so what they do is they use the state law to form a borough, like a municipality, that has to be recognized as a level of government within the Alaskan state system. And because of National Environmental Policy Act, NEPA, 1969, whenever there's a proposed development where there's federal regulatory authority over, that federal government has to consult through public comment periods, state and local government. So now North Slope Borough is enrolled in the federal and state system and through that uh, can have a say on development in the north. And so they weren't able to use treaty and, and their own governments to, to win that, but through the loop, through the kind of missing aspects of the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act, they did get some small victory. And then what I find so interesting is that Nupiat learned that lesson and they consulted with the Inuvaluit, who are just next door in Canada, and said, well, look, when you go into your treaty arrangements, you're going to want this. And so the Inuvaluit final agreement in 1984, as I said, incorporates environmental impact assessment at the heart of the treaty. I'm still trying to wrap my mind around the politics in, in Alaska and all the jurisdictions, the overlapping jurisdictions that inform land use and uh, decision-making processes. And as you know, the North Slope Borough, or the uh, North Slope Native Corporation, I forget the acronym for it. Um, yeah, the Arctic Slope Regional Corporation. Yeah, Arctic Slope Regional Corporation, thank you. And then there's one other one... Uh, you mentioned two, uh, but they, they, they have profited um, and done well by ANCSA. Um, other regional corporations have not been so successful, especially in the Southwest, um, or at least at the village level. And my understanding is that you know the shareholders in the village corporations don't profit unless the corporation profits as a business model. <laughs> That's how, you know, as a business model works. Right. And there's... They're state chartered corporations, so tribes don't have jurisdiction over how the land is used. But it sounds like something very different is going on up up on the North Slope, though, which is sounds like they have much more of a sovereignty is working differently up there, it sounds like. Yeah, definitely through the borough. And this is yeah. like a municipality entity where they can tax or zone, right? And so they can use the, those structures to earn profits from other people's land uses on their borough land and did um, they, was that a did they uh form that through 
the borough was formed through the regional corporation or was that did all the did people have to vote on it or? it was formed through the state and so there was an application to the state and this is really interesting what they needed to prove in order to become a borough was that that you know the people used and occupied those two terms used and occupied the the lands they were claiming as a borough in order to to say yes this is a this is an, a unique municipality and so they had archaeology studies anthropologists geographers saying yeah look at the people are kind of settled in these five or six places but they hunt here they fish there they travel these routes and so that was uh, the argument made and in fact after the earthquake in Anchorage, I think it was 1964, there was uh, a lot of studies in the state on re recovering and, and trying to get information about people, where they lived. And so the state had actually already collected that information. And so by 1970, when the North Slope applies for borough status, the state couldn't necessarily ignore all the data it had already collected. And so by a funny kind of coincidence of history, the state had actually proven it's the case for the borough. And so that, uh, yeah, that that was a really incredible turn of events. And it actually came down to some really savvy political maneuvering by a few people in the North, one being Eben Hobson, who was the, the first mayor of the North Slope Borough, but a really important uh, Inuit, Inuit political activist who was well-tied in Anchorage, Juneau, um, Washington, D.C. And so you see him arriving before the President's Council on Environmental Quality, which is a group created by the National Environmental Policy Act, to say, look, you know, you're putting this act into being, you're, you're doing these impact assessments, but you haven't consulted uh, all of the state and local bodies. So again, using the state system, the, the settler colonial state, but now an environmental environmental state, using the environmental state to, to earn uh, some amount of self-determination to fashion Inuit as stewards of the land to claim indigenous knowledge as more robust than science itself, because science is only temporary in the Arctic. You only come up for a summer. You only see a small portion. And so indigenous people in the 1970s and starting in the North Slope and in Canada, too, start to use these systems to, to make a space for themselves. And that, that continues today. And that kind of goes back to what you said earlier. I wanted to revisit this question about, you know, Southerners having a perception of indigenous peoples as, you know, these ecologically noble uh, Indians, right, and the, or savages. This is a very common term now to, to scholars and anthropologists and historians. So obviously we've learned to, to contest those simplified notions of indigeneity, uh, but they, indigenous peoples, at least in the area I study, recognize the, the political power of, of fashioning indigeneity in that way. And so it has been a tool to, to claim stewardship of the land. Uh, it has a base. I mean, it's very true in a sense that indigenous peoples steward the land. But by framing oneself and one's community in that way in the 1970s turned the machines of of environmental thought. It turned the conservation groups and NGOs. It brought those groups into the discussion of pipelines, and it created the political pressure to, to in Canada to decide against a certain pipeline. And so uh, not, I'm not saying that that was a false form of indigeneity. I'm just saying that as much as we contest and challenge and problematize ecologically noble Indian, it has done work for indigenous people. And anthropologists have pointed out how that's true. I mean, a colleague from Wisconsin, Noah Terrio, an anthropologist who does work in the Philippines, has talked a lot about this. Uh, but it's a certain form of micropolitics that we shouldn't ignore. So you're talking about activism 
and your edge effects article from earlier in the year, you draw upon biologist Barry Commoner's call for the re repositioning of scientists in society. Uh, and there's echoes of this throughout your book. Can you speak a little bit more to, to how you envision this repositioning of scientists vis-a-vis -vis the Arctic? And also for you know our listeners and readers whose relation to, to science is, is certainly diverse, how should we engage with Arctic science and, and the Arctic in general? Yeah, this is a really great question, too. And where I go to answer that first part are some success stories that I've been able to see. I think part of being a, a publicly engaged scholar around this issue, climate change in the Arctic, I've attended conferences that I might not otherwise attend, like conferences of scientists learning about climate change, International Polar Year meetings, um, scientists who come to do regional studies or community-based monitoring. And so I've attended these as a historian, usually the only historian in the room. But I get to see there are many, many scientists who work in academia who are committing their entire research agenda to community-based work. Um, they're allowing their research agenda to be led by communities who want data to help adapt to changes or manage harvest quotas or develop assessments of, of certain projects. And so there's many of the, those scholars are already out there, already doing this kind of work. So within the scientific community, I think it's just showing the, the benefits of that, showing the, the moral and ethical dimensions of those choices, and showing how that's no less of an objective form of data. In fact, it's, it's rich data that can be quickly translated into policy, into action at the level of a state, a province, territory, or even the level of a village or community. For readers and listeners who are, you know, thinking about science and trying to find a way to engage with that, whether in the Arctic or whether in climate change generally, I think what with the book I'm trying to do is, is one, show you uh, the avenues through which you could meet a climate scientist, right? You might see them on the news. You might see them in the, in the media. You might hear a report. You might watch Inconvenient Truth. And you're consuming science, right? And so learning to see that data, those data points, those scientists as actors, as, as embedded in uh, environmental and colonial histories is an important mindset to adopt. And I don't think that'll be hard for edge effect readers and listeners. The next thing is maybe a little bit more challenging, and that is seeing what is transpiring in the Arctic as not you know, closed off from the rest of the world or a unique example based on the unique extreme environments of the Arctic or its sensitivity to global greenhouse gas emissions, but rather as the first of what will be many examples of climates changing local environments and animating deep histories. And so wherever your readers and listeners are, uh, they're going to face these same questions of representation, community-based knowledge and engagement, histories of science, and current contemporary rapid environmental changes. And so we all, readers and listeners of Edge Effects, need to engage the scientists in our communities to understand what is happening in central Pennsylvania with climate change, what is happening in Wisconsin with climate change, and think about what's at stake with histories of science in our regions. It might not be the same level of a moral and ethical dimension because there may not be marginalized populations or indigenous populations there. But we still need to engage science and, and share that information and, and understand together how we manage, adapt, and, and assess things on the ground where we live. So I think that's the largest 
point I want to make at the end with the book is this, the Arctic is a unique place. Sure. I agree with that, but it's not uh, at the same time. It's also very common and it will become much more common as our world continues to warm up and as climates everywhere continue to change. Well, let's return to your book then just for a final question. You organized your book around themes that have historically informed human thinking about and interaction with the Arctic. Um, and as you've just articulated, you know, the Arctic is not a closed off, isolated space. It's not, there are components of it that are uh, perhaps exceptional, but it's, it's in, in fact actually very common when you look at patterns uh, of climate change elsewhere. Uh, and, and it should not be seen as a uh, isolated space, isolated from, from human lives and from, from actions elsewhere. And so the themes that you organize your book around are dangerous, threatened, wild, strategic, and disturbed. And you place these themes along a timeline, but are there remnants of each of these present in today's Arctic politics? Um, and then the second question to follow that, what, today would you offer a new term perhaps? Sure, yeah. I really like thinking about architectural structures of books or architectural structures of narratives. And historians do this all the time, trying to think about how we periodize the past, how we break up this long expanse of time into meaningful chunks. And so obviously, chronological order is a really effective way of, of tracking change over time. And so the book is chronological. But I, I purposely wanted to bring the story to the present. And that creates a lot of challenges when you write a history because there's not really a clear end. And so in one sense, it's hard to say what's the arc of, of Arctic history if it hasn't ended. Where I came to at the end with my thinking with that is there's a benefit here. There's, there's a virtue in not closing the story with a, with a particular end date. And that virtue is all of Arctic history continues to build on itself, entangle with itself, and be present in the present moment. So even though Dangerous is the first chapter and it talks about this you know, 19th century history of explorers and fur traders going north and not being successful, risking their life, and that's a metaphor for the, the failures of British and Russian empire in the Arctic, that moment, that dangerous idea of the Arctic is folded into the next period and it's folded into the one after that and it's still part of our present day media around the Arctic and understanding. I mean, the first thing you ask anyone about the Arctic, and they'll either say polar bears or they'll say polar explorers. And so that's, that's still very much alive. And so that's what I really wanted to accomplish with writing a history that recognizes history as not just another time, like this is history, this is the past, but history as alive, history as constitutive of what we experience every day. So the narrative structure mirrors that, makes that argument. Um, and that the, the very last chapter isn't the, you know, this u last unique period. It's the summation of everything. And that's really the epilogue. What's happening today? What's going on with climate change in the Arctic today? How are we framing it today? And how is that uh, reflecting, animating, and further entangling the history with uh, what we envision for the future of the Arctic? In terms of a, a, a new term for today, I, I wrestled with this. Should I come out and say that? And I kind of did in the introduction and in that the Arctic, I ask in the introduction, is the Arctic out of time? 
And that's a, a play on words in that we often think, oh, it, it's changing forever. It's, it's, it's out of time in the sense that it's going to be obliterated by climate change. Uh, but what I meant really by that is, are, have we displaced the Arctic from its history of colonialism and environmental change? And, and have we displaced it from the histories of science that allow us to see the colonial history and histories of environmental change? So I, I think that's an apt uh, phrase for the, the ways we engage the Arctic today that is, is out of time. Whether we project onto the Arctic our concerns about global futures and globalization and potential geopolitical conflict and climate change, or we encapsulate the Arctic as this kind of capsule of, of an ancient past, a polar ex exploration past, primitive peoples. Um, it, it might sound simplistic to EdgeFX listeners who know colonial history and know environmental history, but despite all of that understanding within academe, that is the way the Arctic is presented in our popular and scientific media. So that, that's the term that's out there, and it gives us impetus as scholars to challenge and contest those with our histories. Uh, the Arctic might be the first place we, we start to do this more forcefully, but it shouldn't be the only place. And as I mentioned, any place, if you look at right now where, where climate change is happening first or most pronounced, it's in river deltas in the Arctic. It's also in places that are considered developing or formerly colonized regions. So I'm anticipating that what we see in the Arctic will also be true in the Amazon. And what we see in the Arctic will also be true in um Bangladesh and, and river deltas and places where people are experiencing sea level rise and rapid environmental change right now. Well, great, Andrew. This has uh, been a real pleasure. Thanks for your time. And yeah, congratulations again on, on, on your book. And uh, I, I can only begin to imagine all the, the work that goes into that project. So um, yeah, it's really exciting. And, and I look forward to putting a copy on, on my shelf. Right on. Yeah. Thank you so much for generating these questions for looking over the, the the text i mean it's still kind of odd that other people are reading this but that's the whole point but it, you know it, it's kind of been my you know it's like you work on this and the ideas are in your head and you put them on paper but then now they, they're getting out there and that's what i really really want so i appreciate the platform and the venue to to talk about it and to share it that was william Vuano baron speaking with Andrew Stuhl, Assistant Professor of Environmental Studies at Bucknell University and author of Unfreezing the Arctic, Science, Colonialism, and the Transformation of Inuit Lands, the brand new release from the University of Chicago Press. Learn more about Professor Stuhl's work at andrewstuhl.com and follow him on Twitter at Andrew Stuhl. That's S-T-U-H-L. You've been listening to Edge Effects, a production of CHE, the Center for Culture, History, and Environment in the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Today's episode was produced by me, Brian Hamilton. The music you're listening to is by Julian Lynch. Check back for new episodes soon, or better yet, subscribe to the Edge Effects podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn. And if you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review. As always, keep up with the steady flow of great content about cultural and environmental change across the full sweep of human history at edgeeffects.net.